Well, it is a treat to be here. The, uh, I'm not actually a part of the family, but I've been kind of adopted into it. A lot of the families right over here. If you're just, raise your hand if you're part of the family, because they're all over here too. Look at them. And then there's, and the, actually though, they are kind of a crazy family, so I do fit in with it in another way though. But it was a fun day yesterday and, and so exciting. And of course, knowing Rob and Michelle and kind of letting them, having them let Gene and I become part of their family through the years and watching it. And then the wedding yesterday was such a, a thrill and uh, uh, to be at, and it was just wonderful. Anyway, Rob asked me, uh, because of the fact that he planned on being tired, which he is, and uh, asked me to stay over in the share, and so I'm happy to do that. Thrilled to be here for that as well. This morning, if you would, oh, if you need a Bible, they'll pass out a Bible for you if you don't have one. We're going to turn to the book of Exodus. Raise your hand, and they'll give you one. Now, uh, Pastor Don, Pastor Don, I'm over here in the back. Yes. I'll forget if I don't do this. One of the best teachings I have ever heard on the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably the best sermon series I've ever heard my entire life, Pastor Don gave. He's got it on MP3. At the end of the service, after you hear what he's going to share today, you're going to just be so blessed by what God's put together back there. This man's amazing. I'm thankful. I know you don't want me to talk to him. Shut up. (laughs) That little advertisement was brought to you by. (laughs) No, actually, one of the things, Joe Foch, very dear friend of mine, I didn't know this, but for years he had been calling my secretaries and had collected uh, my messages, and he put together on one a USB drive, 950 messages from Genesis to Revelation, and he put it together, and it's rather incredible, I mean, what they do technology today. And if, the funny part of about it is, is that a lot of my friends, whether it's Greg Laurie or Bob Coy or any of these guys that have been around for so many years, they're always techie, they're way ahead of everything. And I'm way behind, I'm, I'm the farthest thing from that, and all of a sudden when they did this, I leaped ahead, everybody wants to to follow me now. For about two weeks, I'm ahead of everybody, but then it'll be back to normal. Anyway, did you get a Bible? We, that, if you need a Bible, stick your hand up if that didn't happen. Okay. To me, if somebody's passing something out, I always take it. And then, need it or not, then you can evaluate later whether you want to keep it or what to do with it. But it, uh, I'm a Scotsman, and that's a good Scotsman. You're, you're responsible to do that. I mean, I mean, my motto, being Scottish, is simply, where there's a will, I want to be in it. And... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, that's how I think. This morning, though, if you would, turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. And I'm going to look this morning at the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we'll explain what that is as we get into it. But here God in Exodus 25, he's revealing to Moses the tabernacle, this incredible place of worship where the children of Israel were to come before God and ultimately where he was going to meet with them and minister to them. It's where all the sacrifices and the offerings, where the priesthood all operated, and it's where God met with men and men with God, the tabernacle. And the very first thing God mentions in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so here God's speaking to Moses in Exodus 25, 10, where I'll begin. It says, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its, uh, its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it, and it shall make of a molding of gold all around. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be in one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. 
And you shall put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. And the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony which I will give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it with one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. Uh, The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you will put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. And between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. About everything that I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Father we thank you for your word. What a gift that we have. The most precious thing in all the world, a lamp under our feet and a light under our path. Lord, I pray today that as we look at this, that you would take out of it some wonderful truth for every one of us. Something, Lord, that would touch our hearts and strengthen us in our fellowship and our knowledge of you. For, Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think one of the most important things sometimes to do whenever you pick up the Bible is to remember that, that first of all, Very simply, the Bible is Jesus' book. It's really all about him. One time the Pharisees coming to Jesus and trying to figure him out, and here they were Bible scholars. That's what their career was, and uh, the Pharisees. And yet they were trying to figure him out, and they couldn't. And Jesus looks back at them one time, and he says, You know, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they that speak of me. It was all about Jesus. It was all, all, all pointing to Jesus in one way or another. I know, I remember one time way back, probably around Bible school, I don't remember when I first heard it, but there are seminary, but the, I remember a little quote somebody once said that, very simple, but it's very insightful. It says, the new is in the old contained, and the old is in the new explained. And when you look at that, it's like it's saying there's really nothing new in the New Testament. It's all contained prophetically in the Old Testament. So much of what was promised there, the New Testament merely records, it happened. It, it, you know, it, it was fulfilled for the most part. But it also says the, 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 the old, or the new is, the old is in the new explained. And the Old Testament is filled with all these types and symbols and pictures. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake unto us by his prophets, now hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Here the Bible says all these types and symbols and pictures and allegories, God was speaking to us. In, in times past, but now in these last days, it's all come together in Christ. And of course, the whole book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it, it is explaining there, when it looks at Moses or Aaron, it says, you know, Jesus is better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the high priest, uh, better than, than the sacrifices, better than the law, better than all of these pictures and types and symbols and, and all the scriptures, this is simply because he is the fulfillment of them. They all pointed to him. They were all about him. They were all preparatory for the coming of Christ into the world. And so the book of the Bible is really all about Jesus. So many pictures, so many things are so wonderful. You may remember the story of one time when the children of Israel, they're out in the wilderness and they're in a dry place and they're murmuring, you know, and complaining there's no water. And they came to Moses and said, wherefore, if you brought us and our cattle out here to die of thirst and Moses goes before God and he says, God, they're murmuring against you and against me, saying, wherefore are they out here to die 
uh, thirst. And God told Moses, Moses, I want you to take your rod. And I want you to smite the rock. And water will come out of the rock. Well, Moses goes out, takes his rod, smites the rock. And water just pours out. Incredibly enough there to satisfy the needs of a, th- a million people and all of their animals. I mean, just a torrent comes out incredibly here. And, uh, and to satisfy their needs and God bless them. Well, years later, they're going around in circles. They come back again. And once again, they're complaining. They're murmuring. Moses goes before God, and he says, God, they're, they're doing at it again. They're, they're murmuring against you and murmuring against me. And God, this time, he says, Moses, I want you now to go out and speak to the rock. First time, he said, smite the rock with your rod. He says, this time, I want you to go and speak to the rock, and water will come out. Well, if you know the story, Moses actually, the second time he went out and he was so angry, he says, uh, you know, to the children of Israel, wherefore you generation of rebels, why chide you against God and chide you against me? And he took his rod and he smote the rock twice. Well, water graciously came out to meet the needs of the people, but God took Moses and Aaron aside. Afterwards, he says, because you have not sanctified or honored me among my people, you will not go into the land. Now, that seems like a very harsh judgment. Seems like a very, very difficult thing to do to somebody, but, you know, why would God? I mean, the man served you, and he's been a wonderful leader for many, many years, and one day his temper gets better of him, and he does this, and now you're going to deny him going into the land. But you see, in the New Testament, Corinthians, the Bible tells us that rock from which they drank was Christ. And you see, Jesus, is he's a rock that is smitten once on the cross, but never to be smitten again. From then on, you speak to the rock. Then on he ministers and he cares. He, he, he died on the cross once. He, he was smitten once for us, but you never crucify him afresh again. And here Moses in the Old Testament, picture language of the Bible, he crucified Christ afresh in his anger. He misrepresented God. And what a harsh judgment, but at the same time, it, it was an allegory. It was a picture that he was ruining. You know, the children of Israel, they were fed day by day by manna in the wilderness for 40 years sustained them. And in the New Testament, again, one time the Pharisees coming to Jesus, who are you and what are you all about? And they pressured him constantly. He said, look, John 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I'll raise him up at that last day. This is not that manna that your fathers that eat in the wilderness are dead, but whosoever eateth and drinketh of me will never die. Now, when you look at this, it's not Jesus saying, no, you eat, you eat me. No. What he's doing is the allegory in the Old Testament, that manna that sustained them, physically, that got them going, you know, all the way that took care of them all the time in the wilderness. Jesus said, what that physical manna was to their physical life, I am spiritually the life. Just as that was the basic sustenance that provided and kept them alive, I'm also the, the, the sustenance of the soul. I've gotten the very basic diet of all of human life. And here when he looked at it, he says, you must take of me. And if you do, you'll live. You're the strength, the blessing that comes from life. And so there's these wonderful pictures and allegories. Well, I suppose one of the most beautiful of them all is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is so incredible because, first of all, we know about it that the tabernacle is literally in heaven. And here what God is instructing to Moses is something that I want you to replicate what I have on heaven. Going on in heaven right down here on earth that people can get a picture of what I'm doing. Of what the ministry is all about. We know it's in heaven because in Revelation 11.19. John, when he, in his revelation, when he's taken to heaven, he says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of the Covenant. Here he looks there, and God literally takes John up into heaven, shows him, and he says, There's the tabernacle. The very thing that the children of Israel had in the Old Testament is still here in heaven. And then he looks at it, and then he shows him in the midst of it, the Ark of the Covenant. 
That was the place where, as we, as we read, God says, there will I commune with thee and thee with me. And here is the, the Ark of the Covenant, perhaps one of the most beautiful of all the pictures and the allegories of Christ in the Old Testament. This one speaks magnificently of what he's all about. Now, the first thing that the Ark, I believe, is, is he lays this out for Moses. The very first thing that he wants Moses to, 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 to know and the children of Israel know is that the Ark of the Covenant, number one, it speaks of the preeminence of Christ. It tells us here in verse 10, it says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, uh, and, a, and a cubit and a half its height. But here the very first thing that is mentioned is the ark of the covenant. God is going to go on in many chapters to follow, building, you know, in, to how to build the entire tabernacle. But here, long before he gets to the outer perimeters, he starts there with the Ark of the Covenant, and then there's the Holy of Holies, Holiest of All, the Court of the Gentiles, and all these other things going on out. But the very first thing that God lays out, the very first thing he wants constructed, is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, any of you, if you're a builder, a contractor, an architect, this is not the way you build anything. Anytime you're building anything, you always start with the outer parameters. What's the, what, you know, where's the, where's the front of the house? What are the, what's the, the plot size of the land you've got? Uh, how wide? How deep? How long? And then you, you build in from it. You start from the outside and say, and there's, okay, well, then here's where the, the front yard is. Here's where the garage will be. You've got to have access to the street. Here's where the front door will be. And then you go work on there. You don't have to open the front door and go into a bathroom or a closet. Maybe you do, I don't know, but most people don't. But it's a, you know, you open it up and you're in a, you know, an entry hall of some form, and then maybe there's a living area, and then, you know, a dining room or other things, and you then work out to all the other rooms. But you never start with the kitchen sink, really. The very first thing that a builder does, he starts on the outside and he goes in. God is different in that when God builds something, the very first thing he mentions is himself. He always starts, you know, you know, with himself. And this speaks, you know, of the preeminence. He says, because God has no limits. There is no boundary. He has no outer, you know, I don't have to put the front door, the back door here. I don't, I don't run into a wall there. And I'm, in, I'm, I'm never ending. I'm omnipresent. I'm everywhere. There's no limit to me. I mean, timeless, eternal, ever-present God. And here he looks there. And the very first picture this is when he's designing a place that we're going to meet, he says, first of all, it starts with me. It starts with who I am. And here, that, what this speaks of is, is the importance of the preeminence of Christ. That all things, the Bible says, in him they consist. The Bible says in all things that he might have the preeminence, that he might be the central aspect of it. And that is the most important truth that I believe a human being will ever know. Is that life always starts and is built out from the presence of God. Who he is, his presence, his life, his power. It all has to begin with him. Amazingly, we can go build our whole life and do all sorts of things and never even think about where God even fits in if he does it all. But here the life that is going to be blessed is a life that says, no, I must start with God. You know, our sins are many, all of us, no question about it. We're all terrible sinners. But there is one sin that is unforgivable. The Bible tells us there that when the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment, when the Spirit of God tells us there that, no, that, that we need Christ, no man comes to Christ unless the Spirit draws, and when the Spirit draws, and if I don't respond to him. That's the only unforgivable sin that there is in the Bible. God says, if you take your life and you do it without me, 
We think of the terrible sinners as the Attila, the Huns, and the Genghis Khans, and the Hitlers, and the Mussolinis, and Saddam Husseins, or whatever else. And, uh, who, you know, but, but yet, our sin personally is just as bad. If I there am living a life outside of Christ, I'm a murderer. I've murdered my own soul. I've cut myself from God. I'm a thief. The Bible says I'm an adulterer. God looks at me, and he wants me to love him as, I, as he loves me. And when he watches me love the world, or love another, or love something else, or have a greater priority, God feels he's grieved. But yeah, we were made by God, for God, to be with God. And when I cut that off, I said, I don't need him. Their God, whose love is so powerful, so perfect, and he looks at we're the object of his affections, and we love another. It's spiritual adultery in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. God speaks to Hosea and says, go take a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land hath committed greater harlotry, departing from the Lord. God looked at the children of Israel. He said, when I see you loving all these other things in me, you committed harlotry against me. My heart is as grieved as it would be that somebody who watched their husband or their wife go out and love another. You see, that's the most important thing is that we would look there and start there. With this simple, wonderful, incredible, you know, you know, love for God. And Lord, you must be center. For as Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God in his righteousness. All the other things will be added unto you. You get the preeminence of Christ right. And that's something that we live in a world that wants to keep us from it. Wants to drive us from it. You know, I'm sure a number of you were here yesterday for the wedding. It was so precious watching Micah and Molly. And you know, just so precious, so young, so innocent in so many ways in, in watching them and their, their precious love. And, you know, and then somebody told me later, I didn't know this until I, but after the wedding, but that, that yesterday was their very first kiss. And, uh, and I was just, then when they told me that, I said, really? And they said, I said, I, said, I don't believe that. I saw that kiss. They have worked on that kiss. They, they, they had that down very good. That couldn't have been the first. Well, they said it was. But, I mean, right now, I mean, these two innocent people, life is so precious. It's so innocent. But from, I'll tell you, from this day on, it is going to get more complicated. Incredibly so. You know, we look there. They've been married. I mean, I've been married 45 years in a few months. We've got three children, uh, nine grandchildren. You know, one, our oldest is 21, grandchild. And we look at all of this. But life gets more complicated. You know, you're so innocent. You walk out there. But the next thing you know, you leave here and you find out that woman eats. <laughs> and uh, she, she wants a roof overhead. She wants clothing. She's got to go to the dentist. She wants a car. I mean, we look at all the stuff you've got to do. Then next thing you know, you've got a child coming. And next thing you know, you, know you, got, you need a better job. You need more money. You need, a, uh, you need to fix a car. You've got all these struggles going on. You lose a job. You know, life goes on and, and it gets more and more and more complicated. It's harder and harder in one sense. But the most important thing is all the way through to keep the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Is all these other things try to complicate it. So all these other things come in and want to have a voice. Want to say, you know, you need to do this. You need to do that rather than, no, I need to keep, keep Jesus center, preeminent. But also here, it's not only a wonderful picture of the preeminence of Jesus. It also speaks of the priesthood of Jesus. For it says there in verse 10, you shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, two and a half cubits its width, or a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and make on it a molding of gold all around. Now, here we have this ark, this box, essentially, you might say what it is, but its inner substance is acacia wood. This speaks of Jesus' earthly birth, springing from the lower soil of life. 
coming from the dust of the earth out of it. And this speaks of him being portrayed as coming from a woman's seed, essentially. A human savior for a human race. And here you look at Jesus when he came here into the world. He came fully human, a fully God. We'll look at that in a moment. But fully human. That he was made like unto his brethren, the Bible tells us. That he came here that wanting to experience all the sufferings, all the, the, the trials, all the burdens, all the difficulties, all the tribulations, anything and all things that any human being would ever feel. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, was temp- but was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. When we're looking at Jesus Christ, we have a high priest that he can be touched with any of our infirmities. And he, and he was somebody that, whatever it is, every time, sometimes you feel nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows how I feel. Nobody understands me. That's not true. There is one that will always understand you. The Bible says that Jesus there made, made like unto us and that he was touched with everything for the, that he, with the feelings of our infirmities. Everything that a human being could ever experience, he experienced it. So that he would always, when nobody else understands you, you can always go to him. And when you're tempted to say, I don't know, you don't know how I feel, he say, oh, yes, I do. He knew rejection. He knew pain. He knew hunger. He knew sorrow. He knew what it was to have people turn against him, pluck out his beard. He knew suffering pain. He knew what it was when he looked at his own disciples, all ye like sheep have gone astray. You've all left me alone. He knew sorrow. He knew all of the things that anybody could ever experience in life, and he wanted to do it so he could be a faithful high priest, that he could be touched with anything that's ever going on in any one of our lives. Fully man, he knows exactly how we feel. He knows exactly our sorrow. He even knows the pain of guilt. For the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. There was something there that Jesus literally, we're told in the, essentially what happens in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when there he was the night before he was crucified, and there he traded places with me. He was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But there as he was there in that garden, and he took my place. He took all my guilt all upon him. And there as it were, the Bible tells us, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Father, I would that you'd remove this cup from me. I don't want to die. Not like this. And we may wonder, why is it Jesus sweating to wear great drops of blood? There's millions of martyrs that sang and rejoiced, quoted psalms as they went to their death and they went to their crosses. They were burned at the stake. Why was Jesus sweating to wear? I don't want this. Well, his death was entirely different than anyone else's. All of the other martyrs, their death was right into God's presence. Jesus' death was out of it. There he was to know and experience something he had never known for all eternity past. His father was to turn away from him, and he used to cry out, There, my God, my God, why hast thou? Here he looked, there you've forsaken me. Why? There is he, because he who knew no sin became it, and God in his righteousness, when he took the sins of the world, all the sins of all the world, of all time, put them on his son. There Jesus, with no rejection and loneliness like no other soul was ever to dream of. He wanted to experience it all. And he did. And here, you know, as this wonderful priest. But yet at the same time, notice here, though, it's, it's, it's the, the wood at the, at the core of it. It's entirely covered with gold, inside and out, all around. And gold, of course, speaks of heaven and speaks of deity and the purity of Christ. And here we have this wonderful picture. While he's fully God, fully man, he's also fully God. He's a human Savior, and yet he's mighty God at the same time. 
For as John said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and by Him were all things made that were made, and there was not anything made that was made. But we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We looked at Him, and there was the Word. He was human. And yet He was deity. He was God. He made it all. And what an you know, incredible being there as Jesus came into the world you know, and had this capacity. There is, as on one hand, going the role that he had of the, the wood on the inside and the gold on the outside, that with the wood on, on the inside, fully man, yet fully God, he could reach out and take my hand. And he absolutely understand my humanness, understand my, my failure. And yet with the other hand, he could reach out and hold on to the glory of the Father and look it straight in the eye and identify flawlessly with it. Hold them both and say, I can bring you both together. I know and I love both of you totally. And that's this wonderful picture when we're looking here at the ark. Not only there is he, is he to be the preeminent one to us, he's your priest. He's one that you can go to with all that's in your heart. All the heart sorrow, all the heartache, all of it. And he, and he looks and says, I know you. I understand you. Take my hand. And then watch my other hand. And let's go together. It also speaks wonderfully of the propitiation of Christ. For in verse 17, it says, Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. Now, I know when I say the word propitiation, immediately we go... What's that? And we don't use the word at all much, but it's an incredibly beautiful word. The word propitiation, actually, in the New Testament, is translated mercy seat. That's what the, when he says, you will make a mercy seat. You will make propitiation is the word here that is happening. And then this, this, this seat, what it is, he says it'll be two and a half cubits in length, and this goes on top of the box. We're told they're on top of the ark. So you've got this, this box, essentially, that's been made. And then on top of it, there's this mercy seat, this propitiation seat that is solid gold and uh, that goes on top of it. Now, the thing that's so in, in, in beautiful about this, in a sense, is that inside, we're told there, that you will put the law. You'll put, you know, the law of God inside this box, and then on top of it, you will put the mercy or the propitiation seat to seal it in. Now, the law of God, they're the Ten Commandments. And the commands of God, those are the things that reveal to you and I that we're sinners. Those are the things that condemn us. Galatians tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all that is in the law, both to do it. In other words, any time I have failed in that law, I'm condemned. Because God is holy and is pure and is righteous and it's his nature. It's what he is. He doesn't have to work at it. It's just him. But to be with him, I also must be that too. But the law says you haven't done it, and it condemns me. Now, how does God get together with me? He puts a mercy seat on top. He puts this propitiation seat on top. Now, to understand propitiation, I want to give you another word, you know, first of all, uh, there of what it is. Uh, and, and, and the other word that helps us to understand propitiation, I think, is expiation. Now, expiation is easier to, to lay it out. Essentially, let's say you work down here in town for a factory or something. And you work on a heavy piece of equipment, and it's a piece of equipment that the owner should be keeping it up, but they really aren't. And they've let things, you know, kind of go on it, and it's not running well, but they keep putting you to work on it day by day. And one day, the equipment fails. Something snaps, and all of a sudden, you're severely wounded. 
You know, the ambulance comes, the paramedics haul you off to the hospital, but there you go into care. Perhaps you even lose a, you know, a leg or an arm or something. And there, you know, there's tragedy, but they keep you alive, bring you out of it. And here, you know, months later, you go through rehab and you maybe now you're in a wheelchair or something. And then the law comes together and sits down. They get the, your boss, they get the insurance company, and, and they get the attorneys. They all sit down, and they come up with what we can't, we, we can't give them the leg back. We can't heal them. We can't put their life back as it was. And therefore, what we've taken out of it, we've got to find some way to put it and make it just. What's happened? So we're going to write a check. And here they may say, all right, give them a check for $5 million. At that point, the gavel comes down, and justice has been done. Expiation has happened. Now, in a sense, what has been put wrong, what was done wrong, has now been put right as much as man can put it right. But it doesn't, feel, it doesn't deal with your feelings. It doesn't feel with your heart, deal with your heart or how you, what you think or how you care. You can walk away from there and you've got your check and you've got your money, but you sit there and say, I don't care about that. I used to love to hunt and fish. And I jogged and I had my friends. We played sports. I can't do any of that anymore. And now they give me this check, and I'm supposed to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I never want to drive by that company again. I never want to see that man again. I don't want his name spoken in this house. He has ruined my life. And you can have all sorts of anger, all sorts of wrath against somebody and not what they have done to you. You've been expiated. The law has been fulfilled. But you're still angry. Propitiation, on the other hand, is something that deals with all of it. Not only just simply puts, makes everything just, pays the price, gets it done, but it deals with all of the wrath and all the hostility and all the anger of the one that's been offended. And what this means, the propitiation, it means essentially there, when Jesus died on the cross, he not only paid for my sins, but when the wrath of God was poured out upon him, God, all of his hostility, all of his anger, all of his animosity towards sin and sinners or whatever, it was all poured out. There. There's nothing left. And now he's able to look at you and me. And when I would say, God, I must, I've hurt you. I've done a terrible thing. He would say, I'm not hurt. I have no anger. I love you. He not only expiated, he goes, I love you. I love you incredibly. You never let me down. You've absolutely, you're glorious in my eyes. The Bible says that when Christ died on the cross, he took my sins, he removed them as far as the east or the west. He buried them in the depths of the sea. He hid them behind his back, and he says, Behold, I'll remember them no more. I don't even know about them. I have no awareness of it. No consciousness. When I look at you, you're the apple of my eye. You're the joy of my soul. You're my child at home with me. That's all I know. And I have a father-in-law. Well, he's in heaven now, my father-in-law. But my wife, Jean... She was born when they were in their mid-40s, and she's got two brothers significantly older than her. And when she was, they, they always used to complain, they still do actually about it, you know, that she was just this little princess who could do no wrong in her dad's eyes. And they're growing up, and she'd go in the room and play with her toys and mess it up and do all this. They'd come in and look at that, and they'd go out to dad and complain, Gene did this, you know, whatever they're all upset with. And he would look there at the boys when they would accuse her or anything. And they'd look over at Gene and say, my little Jeannie didn't do that, did you? And she's, no, Daddy. And so I know, you go fix your groom. Don't blame anything on her. Now get out of here and get your life together. And they were always felt like you, she could do no wrong. Dad just looked at her and just loved her no matter what. Well, that's the way God truly looks at us. And, I, and it truly looks and says, I have no record of anything other than your coming and becoming my child. 
Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Now unto him who presents us faultless, the Bible says. God looks at us, now he sees each one. When we understand, this is not only the preeminent Christ, not only the priesthood, but the propitiation that allows God to look today at every one of us. I love you. I have nothing against you. You're my child. And as you grow and mature, you'll know that better and better and better. There's no resentment. There's no anger. There's no hostility. And some of us may feel we're, you know, we're away from God. We must be dis- disappointed to him. No disappointment. Oh, today God looks at you. So I'm only disappointed because I, I miss you. Come on. I love you. The Bible says his mercy endures forever. How incredible it is. It's also not only the preeminence of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, the propitiation of Christ. It's also the praise of Christ. For in verse 18, it says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end, and at the other, another cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the ends uh, of it a one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above the cover, and covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. And the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. Here we have now, on top of this mercy seat, this propitiation seat, Two angelic beings, cherubim. And their wings are spread out. And as their wings are spread out, they're facing one another. But literally, they're looking and beholding the mercy seat. So facing one another, spread out from both of them at one end, coming down, looking onto it. And here we have this incredible, wonderful picture of angelic worship and praise of God for his mercy. As they're looking at God's goodness and his mercy and all of this, there are this, the, these incredible seraphim. There's cherubim as well uh, in the book of Isaiah. Or these are cherubim, there's seraphim there. But in Isaiah, it, Isaiah tells, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And then he goes on and he describes, he says, And above it there were these seraphims. And he says, with tw- they had six wings. With twain, they covered their face. With twain, they covered their feet. And with twain, they did fly. And they shouted, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, as they flew back and forth. But these wonderful angelic beings, they're all over heaven and all around God's work. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, John writes, he says, I beheld. He's looking into heaven. He's taking up there in a revelation. He says, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all of them, I heard them saying blessing and honor and glory and power unto him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Here we have literally millions and millions of angels round about the throne of God looking at the work of Christ. And all they can do is say worthy. Is there praise him? Worthy is the Lamb uh, you know, forever and ever you know, that, to receive riches and power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And you know when you look and think of these angels and they're filled with genuine praise. And it is genuine because we know from God that Jesus, he hates vain repetition. He says, don't ever pray vain with vain repetitions. You just recite the same thing over and over. I'm not interested in it. I want truth. I want your heart. We know if that's what he asked of us, he would never allow it in heaven. They're not just pre-recorded robots. There are beads there that when they would look at him, something comes out spontaneously and deeply and truly. 
And there as they look at him and they find themselves, they fall down and praise. And then they look up and they see more of his glory than they've seen. And they want more riches and more honor. More, more for all that he's done. They're just filled with it. They can't stop it. It's so incredible. And the, the amazing thing about this is that not one angel is a redeemed one. Jesus didn't die for one of them. Not one of them, you know, inherit are, are, are going to heaven because Christ died and rose for them. Jesus isn't interceding for them. He isn't presenting them faultless. They're merely like spectators of just watching God with you and me. He's there, they're watching just the interchange of God towards us and what he does. We're the recipients. They're the observers. And if the, if the observers are, are so thrilled, watching God's love, his redemption, his power, his glory, how much more should we, the recipients? How much more should our heart and our life, whom he ever lives right now to make intercession, who presents us faultless? Spurgeon once said, if I did not praise and bless Christ my Lord, I should deserve to have my tongue torn out by its roots out of my mouth. If I did not bless and magnify his name, I should deserve that every stone I tread upon in the street should rise up and curse my ingratitude. For I am a drowned debtor to the mercy of God over head and ears of of his infinite love and boundless compassion. I am a debtor. Are you not the same? Then I charge you by the love of Christ, awake. Awake your hearts. Magnify his glorious name. How we ought to be ones that realize, Jesus, that's who you are. That's not what you did. It's what you continuously do. You are the preeminent one. You are my priest. You are the one there that my propitiation that has incredibly done all of this, how we ought to praise you. And then lastly, the ark speaks of the passion of Jesus. In verse 12, it says, And you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its two corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. And the the poles uh, shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And now we have here that as this ark is made, it is now to be something there. It's got rings and and poles that go through it. From this point on, for the history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they were now to go wherever the ark went. Whenever God wanted to move the people, they would, the whole rest of the tabernacle, that obviously we're not looking at any of it today, but it was all packed up. And God would take the ark, and they were to follow the ark wherever it went. And then they would set up camp all around it again with certain tribes in the north, south, east, and west. So they would replicate the encampment of everybody where they were. But it was always to continuously, regardless of where they moved, they moved because the ark moved. And the, but the ark was always there from that point on. It was to be carried by the priest. And here what a wonderful picture, and a simple picture this is, is that there, because it's, it's a picture there of the, the one thing in life God wants me to carry is Him. The one burden in life that God wants to leave for every one of us. In Matthew 28, or 11, 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor, and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Here Jesus said, cast all your cares upon me. Bring all of your labors to me. Give me every struggle, everything is, learn of me. And he says, I'm meek and I'm lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your soul if you cast all your cares upon me. But then I will leave you with one burden, only one, the burden of me.
the burden of loving me. The greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Here Jesus says, in a sense, I will take all of your burdens and leave you only with one. And that is to love me back. That's all I want. To carry me. To make me central and keep me central within your life. You know, every day, every one of us, you get up and we all pick up something. You'll get up tomorrow and you'll pick up something. You may pick up your world, your marriage, your children, your bills, your job, your loss of home, your struggles here. And you'll go out carrying that all day long, sweating it out, struggling through it. Or else you'll learn to say, Jesus, I cast all of this upon you. I just carry you. Day by day to remind myself. When something tries to make me its burden, I'm trying to carry it. And oh no, I'm worried about the marriage. I'm worried about the child. I'm worried about the job. I'm worried about that. I'm carrying this. No. Jesus said, carry carry me. I'll carry it. You were never designed in God's economy to bear your own burdens, to run your own life, to solve your own problems, to be the solution of your own marriage and family and children. God says, I am that. I'm the love. I'm the wisdom. I'm the power. Come unto me. I'll give it to you. All you need. Cast all your cares upon me. I care for you. Just carry me. I'm the, you know, and, and if you do that, you know, the, uh, you, if you're carrying the weight of the world today, you shouldn't. You just need to be able to come and say, Lord, forgive me. I was never designed for this. But I was designed that you would be preeminent. Jesus, take that place. Maybe something or somebody or some trial has shoved him aside. And today the Lord wants to say, make me center. Trust me. Let's build out for me. Watch what I do. And then he looks there and, he, you know, with his, and I, I'm your priest. I know your burdens. I know your struggles. I know your heartaches. I'm very educated on all of this. I'm really pretty smart. I'm pretty good. I, I, I said, let there be light, and you got it. I can do a lot of stuff if you'll let me speak to you. And there, but when I'm also, let me be the propitiation. Let me bear it all. Let me be your priest. Let me be the one that you praise. And watch what I do. Watch how I care. Carry me, and I'll carry you. I heard a story once of a fellow, he's a hitchhiker, and he's got this huge backpack he's carrying. He's all the way down with it. And he's trying to go, and he's hitchhiking, and all of a sudden, up comes this huge, brand-new 18-wheeler truck. The fellow pulls over and swings over the door, and he says, Where are you going? Oh, I'm going so-and-so. He says, I can go that way. I'd love to climb on in. Guy climbs up, gets in there, and they're driving down the road. And a little while later, the driver looks over and he sees this poor fellow. He's sitting there next to him, riding down the road, and he's holding on to this heavy thing in his lap. And he's just sweating. They're struggling, carrying it. And the, the, the truck driver says, what are you doing? Why don't you take that and put it down on the floor instead of carrying the thing, holding it? The fellow says to him, he says, oh, I couldn't do that. You were so wonderful to pick me up. I, give me a ride. I couldn't ask you to carry this, too. Well, that's how silly we are. We give our lives to Christ, and yet we bear our own struggles. How many times is it that we would look there and we're saying the same thing to Jesus? You died for me. You're my Savior. You're, you're, you're wonderful. But I have to carry my own weight. He says, no, you don't. I love you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your love and your word. Lord, help us to be able to come before you today and just lay it all down. 
Jesus, maybe some of us, we need to open our heart and say, come in. Now I see who you are. Be my Savior. And Lord, what a wonderful priest you are. What a wonderful one to be in between me and God to realize you look at me and you fully understand me and all my weaknesses and all my infirmities and all my humanness. And you died for it and you forgive it. And you can look me straight in the eye and say, I know. And yet to know you reach out the other hand and look straight into the eye of the Father. And you know his glory perfectly and you match. And it's your joy to bring us all together. Jesus, be our priest. Lord, be the one there that also we realize your love today. Maybe some of us think you're angry with us, you're upset with us. If you ever get your hand on us, you're going to really straighten things out. Help us to realize you say, I have no anger left. I have no wrath left. It was all poured out on the cross. I only have love for you. I want you to come home. Lord, may we again today just realize your love and your goodness. And as we do, may our hearts be filled with praise. For you're worthy. This is the greatest truth of all time and eternity. And then, Lord, as we do, may our heart be one that says, Now help me keep you first. And bear you upon my heart throughout the day. And each day from now on. We ask it, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.